Coming up on Stu Does America. Don't worry, everyone. The stimulus package has passed and relief is heading our way. Here it is to save the day. Two trillion dollars. We'll get it paid back another day. Eric Shelman is here, of course, and he's going to tell us about why we shouldn't get ahead of ourselves on celebrating the end of the coronavirus. And Jeff Fisher sends up some smoke signals from his quarantine cave, and I guess I'll do my best to interpret it. Don't forget to click and subscribe, and I'll do all the things you need to do. Rate, review. If you're reviewing, maybe something like, it's great, whatever. That should do nicely. And while you toil away in quarantine, consider whether you're ever going to wear pants again. And, of course, you're going to need something to watch. This is why, of course, for the first time ever, we're offering $30 off your subscription to Blaze TV. What do you have to do to get it? Go to blazetv.com slash stew and use the promo code stew because that's how they know you like this stupid show. $30 off right now at blazetv.com. The promo code is stew. Stew does America. Hey, congratulations, America. The $2.2 trillion relief bill has passed. America is now marked safe from the coronavirus. The only way to truly be safe, of course, is to spend every dime in potential earnings of your future great, 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 great grandkids. Now, I know there are some wacky skeptics out there who think the federal government won't do a good job managing the distribution of $2 trillion. And there's a perfectly good, rational, informative way to respond to any skeptic you might run into who may still think we're not totally in the clear because of this bill. All you have to do is tell them that they just want people to get sick and die. Hashtag facts. Yes, we just spent the equivalent of 10%, 10% of the entire national debt accumulated in the entire existence of our country. I know, I know, I know. Think of all the benefits. Um, well, hold on. We see this can right here? The can? Put the can. This is the, the new rain red dragon. Mm, it's delicious. Okay. See this? Let me go. There we go. We just kicked the can like two inches down the road. It's going to be great. Don't worry about it. Everything's going to be fine. Now, can we get back to more important matters like arguing on Twitter? Because that's what really gets us going these days. You know, sometimes you have to look for the silver lining in things. Take the coronavirus, for example. Sure, it's a deadly pandemic sweeping the globe and crashing economies. But is it all bad? Yes, pretty much. Yes, it is really bad. That said, situations like this tend to bring what really matters directly into focus. For example, I can't go sit in a Denny's and feed my face for hours at a time anymore. I will never take that for granted again. I miss you, Denny. And microaggressions. It's as if, you know, something serious came strolling into town suddenly. And all of a sudden, uh, the oversensitive people to microaggressions are just kind of gone. You know, the guy who says, you know, uh, cis, trans, elephant humans who are polyamorous are underrepresented in cinema today. I mean, those people just kind of instinctively know to shut up while this is going on, right? Just for a while. There have been a couple of headlines attempted by woke media. How the gender fluid are dealing with the coronavirus. And the Internet is all just like, we just give it a rest already. But I thought we had a, a good thing going here, don't we? Well, we did. But that's over now. Go away. When things are good, you know, that uh, come back then. We need something to get us angry. Like when things are really happy and everyone loves everything. Come back then. But now we're trying not to die. So go away. So the woke thing is at least dead for a little while. I'm sure it'll come back eventually, but it's funny how like when real things come along, you find out what really matters. 
The other stuff sort of fades away. Thank capitalism, by the way, for all of this, that we live in a country so blessed in abundance that we can think about incredibly specific things like gender fluid representation in romantic comedy starring John Cusack. We're going to have to dive into that, I guess, a little bit later. Today, I want to try something a little different. I want to hear from all of you and just see how this is affecting your world, because we can kind of all maybe empathize a little bit and learn a little something. We start with a familiar name, our own Jason Buttrell. He says, uh, I asked, you know, what, what are the differences? What are you noticing uh, that have, that, that's changed in your world? He says, neighborhood streets every evening look like Halloween night, minus the costumes. Everyone's out in my streets, in my neighborhood, walking and riding bikes. Biking and walking trails are more crowded than freeways. Now, look, one of the big negatives here, of course, of coronavirus is exercise. Harder to avoid than ever. When you can only go outside, I mean, it's hard to say that you don't have time because it's just like, how much Netflix can you watch? Answer, quite a lot. It is probably the worst part about coronavirus, though. Uh, next up, we have, uh, let's see, this one is more meals together is another change we've noticed. More time with family. Pets are happier, I think. Hopefully there's a full conversation they had to confirm that. More exercise, again, the evil exercise. And more stress about the future in my job. Underplayed in the media is, is, is this because, you know, long-term stress about whether we have an economy or not in the future is legitimately tearing people apart. Um, you know, you sit back and you worry about what's coming next for your job, for your family, for your future. How long can we do this? I mean, we can do a couple weeks of this, but how much more? Uh, next up, we have, I uh, thought it was interesting to see how all frozen pizzas were cleared out of Walmart except for veggie pizzas. <laughs> now, I don't know if you can judge the future of vegetarianism by the Walmart shopping crew. Now, I happen to be a vegetarian that shops at Walmart, but I don't think that's a typical thing. Um, most vegans are probably at some place where they're going to charge 12 times the amount for the same thing. But overall, I would say the reason why the veggie pizzas are there, in my experience, is because olives are evil. It's true. Uh, next up, we have, I have been in my neighborhood for six years. I've met neighbors I've never see, even seen before from a distance, of course. Well, it's good to be safe. It is weird, but it's true. Social distancing has actually had people meeting more people, which is, shouldn't make any sense, but it seemingly does. We see people out in front of our house all the time on the streets, walking around. People are outside. They're doing things and you can yell across the street, I guess, safely. Um, and I'm one of these people who live in a, in a place where I, you know, I, you probably have picked this up. I could probably go the rest of my life without seeing another human being, maybe outside of my direct family. And that's kind of it. You know, I'm really, I'm not the most social guy, but I will say this. It is a little odd when you live in neighborhoods now and you go, can go years and years without even knowing your own neighbors. Um, now that people are forced to go out in the street more often, people are meeting more people, might be something we need to examine later. I'm just throwing that out there. Next up, uh, walking through Houston Intercontinental Airport, with all the business kiosks wrapped up in cellophane and seeing maybe 100 people in the entire place. I'm an airline pilot uh, out trying to keep my airline alive. You know, this is a tough one because obviously the airlines were the basically the first target for uh, bailouts. And understandably so, we've basically told people they're not allowed to f go to their business. Uh, you cannot buy tickets. Uh, it's very, very difficult, obviously, for airlines. And this is going to hit you know, all the people who work at the airports and everything else. How long can government pay for our entire economy? Is this a question that we have an answer to? I know it's not forever, because if it's forever, why am I coming in here every day? 
I will say this, not every part of the economy is bad. Next up, we have uh, this one. I work at Lowe's. Families think it's a great place to go during this emergency. Close the Black Friday traffic. You know, it's funny. We, <laughs> this is what I, I think everybody's done a little bit of. I'm going to admit a little coronavirus guilt here is normally you'd go out, you'd go to maybe a mall or a restaurant and you do all sorts of various things. Now there's like four places open in town. So you look at the town, you're like, well, which one of the four places are we going to now? I, I could go to the grocery store once a week or once every two weeks, but now I just kind of go to, to essential stores more often. I guess Lowe's is an essential store. And so, you know, like a trip to Lowe's used to be the annoying chore I had on the weekend. Now it's the highlight of my month. You know, I, <laughs> I go to 7-Eleven like 50 times a day. as evidenced by my, my rain energy drink. It's one of those things where I think I used to be more, no more than like 40 or 45 times a day. Now it's 50 times a day to 7-Eleven. Is it a little excessive? Perhaps, but I think we'll live. Next up, we have the true colors emerged of how submissive to authority Americans have become. Like slaves, truly un-American and disheartening. The founders and settlers from New England, where I'm from, would have likened lockdowns to quartering troops in homes. Completely unacceptable. This is a tough one, man, and this is real and it exists. Um, to what extent, we don't know yet. We, you know, we all get that we want to keep people alive. We all get that we want to keep the spread of disease at its very minimum. Um, but I would have thought the American people would have fought this more, would have been more annoyed about it. We, uh, frankly, you know, this has largely been without government action. It's basically been people doing it on their own. You know, maybe the real start of this um, avalanche was the NBA canceling its season. NBA didn't get a, an edict from up above the government to say you got to close. They just did it. Um, so, it, and we saw this happen you know, business after business has done this, but I will say, uh, I kind of thought there would be more pushback, honestly. And it is a little surprising. I'm not sure if it just means that the Americans are really good people and they took this really seriously, or if we've lost a little bit of our fight. I will say we're going to need to fight to stop them from grabbing power in DC afterwards. Every little bit that they have now, they're going to want to hold on until later. Next up, uh, what else has changed in your coronavirus world? I've cooked every single meal, minus one, for the past 12 days. I have almost the same story. I've cooked one meal in the past 12 days. Um, it's a little bit different, I suppose. My habits are kind of going the other way. Uh, I now exclusively eat unhealthy, as opposed to just almost all the time. Uh, I, I am thinking about picking up heroin at this point as well. I'll let you know how that goes. I've heard really good things about it, though. Next up, the world around us has gotten quieter. People keeping their distance, the laughing and joking around cashiers and random people around us has pretty much stopped. You know, I'm torn on this one as far as changes during the coronavirus thing uh, go. I don't really like talking to people generally, but we are kind of losing a little bit of humanity and the connection is getting even more distance than it, than it was. I mean, we're already obviously all the changes with technology and all that have already taken us from here and moved us way out here. There's probably some long-term effects of that, but let's not think about that right now. Next work, uh, next one we have is uh, driving to work is almost pleasurable. It is so much better. Uh, there's no traffic. There's no one on the roads. If only we had any other places to drive to. Next up, people uh, on unemployment making more money than people with jobs. 
You can make $920 a week on unemployment now in Missouri after the Fed relief bill is signed. I haven't checked all the numbers on this, but there is really strange incentives on uh, uh, as part of this bailout. Um, you know, we're going to look back at this and say, wow, the incentives of that, that, that bailout are, are going to wind up being a big part of the story. Um, I think when history is written, we're going to look back and say, I don't know if we should have done all that stuff. And we all had to rush. I mean, we're going to talk about Thomas Massey later on in the show today. You know, we all had to rush. We couldn't even get a vote. We couldn't even get the congressman to come back and take a vote about two trillion dollars in spending. That was too much. He's the enemy because he decided he wanted people to actually take a vote on the bill. And you know this is going to be true um, as we go forward, that so many of these temporary measures are going to turn into permanent ones. And we're going to have a big fight on our hands to make sure that doesn't happen. Next tweet on what's changed in your world and what you've noticed during the coronavirus saga. We've lived in this house for over 30 years. I saw a man who's lived in the house across the street for about five, playing catch with his little boy every afternoon. That didn't happen before, so maybe there are some bright lights of hope in all of this. You know, I bet there's a lot of this happening, actually. Uh, in a way, I, I think, you know, it's going to be a really memorable time for our kids. My kids are young. They don't have a real concept as to what a crazy time this is. But when they look back, I hope they can put it into perspective. I mean, this is the strangest thing that's ever happened to the country, right? I mean, uh, is there any, unless Godzilla attacks sometimes the next you know, few years, and he's usually over more by Japan, I don't think we're going to be, in, I don't think we can have anything to even compare this to. It's sort of weird as, as parents that we have to kind of smile and make things fun and play outside and do all these great things. At the same time, you're trying to kind of manage and balance their schools and your finances and the future of the country. Your bratty kids better say thank you for all this, okay, when this is over. And uh, next up we have, as a nurse, it's kind of refreshing to see most people, sadly not all, actually wash their hands properly. Don't you think it should have always been that way? I mean, yes, I guess so. I will say this, though. We're all washing our hands like 50 times a day, okay? We're all doing it, putting the soap on, we're lathering, we're singing, you know, happy birthday in our heads twice. We're lathering our hands over and over and over again and washing them off and they got the wipes and the antibacterial. So my hands are so dry at this point. I wanna make a solemn promise to you, okay? The second this coronavirus goes away, I'm never washing my hands again, okay? Not even for $2 trillion. Well, if you're watching the media at all and you know the truth about this country, you know it has been increasingly important uh, lately to make sure that independent voices are heard. This year, it is more crucial than ever. This is why we're excited to announce that we have partnered with Pluto TV to find new ways to make sure conservative voices are breaking through. Go tell your friends, your relatives, or anyone who needs to hear some sanity in an increasingly insane time. Watch Blaze Live. It's our ad-supported 24-7 limited uh, live stream on Pluto TV. Channel 250. Now, look, Pluto's got great stuff, man. I mean, it's like, it's like a whole cable system right on your phone for free. It's amazing. 250 channels plus a free TV plus thousands of on-demand movies and series, and it's all absolutely free. Uh, Pluto TV, drop in. Check it out. It's free. Go to PlutoTV.com or download the Pluto TV app. We're on channel 250. What a day today was. $2 trillion plus. Uh, that was the price tag on the big relief package, the bailout package, the rescue package, whatever you want to call it. 
uh, for dealing with what we're, we're handling right now as far as coronavirus goes. One of the big storylines that came out of this was the idea that they were going to pass with unanimous consent the you know biggest spending bill in American history. Seems like a kind of strange thing. We usually have these big debates over this stuff, and it's a big deal. All the votes get used in ads against each other afterwards. And then this one was just going to kind of sail through with no one saying anything. Seemed a little weird. It seemed a little weird to Congressman Thomas Massey, who uh, decided he was going to step up and say, wait a minute, we're not going to do it this way. We need to have a vote on this and get people on record. Thomas Massey uh, from Kentucky joins me right now. Uh, Congressman, thanks for coming on the program. Hey, thanks for having me on. Yeah, it's been a wild ride these past few days trying to get Congress to do its job. It really, uh, it really has. You know, I, I, I want to I get into the sort of pragmatic parts of this here in a second, but correct yeah. me if I'm wrong. On sort of principle here, I know of absolutely no one who's saying your point is wrong. You are saying in the Constitution it says there needs to be a quorum uh, for, for this to happen, and there wasn't a quorum. So can you explain like why you had yeah. this objection, first of all, with the Constitution and, and explain how they're getting yeah. around it? Sure. So uh, two or three days ago, they were uh, voting on this bill in the Senate, and then they said, we'll just you see it in the House. Now, that's shorthand for unanimous consent. And the problem was they were telling people, don't even bother coming to Congress, like stay home. Mm -hmm. We got this. In other words, they were going to ask for unanimous consent in a chamber that had nobody in it. So who would be there to object? Right. <laughs> yeah. Nobody. So I, <laughs> Which is, of course, I, a, a very convenient part of the plan. Yeah. And then they're saying, well, you know, the problem is it's not safe for uh, Congress to, to uh, come to D.C. Meanwhile, I'm thinking, wait, we've got truckers bringing produce to the grocery stores. They're deemed essential. Uh, you know, you've got grocery store baggers who are working, and, and here Congress is making $174,000 a year with the best health care that Obamacare will allow, and they're saying, no, we think we'll just call this one in. And I said, no, this is, I got out my Constitution, <laughs> I practically have memorized, but I, I, and I pointed out that you have to have a quorum, and a quorum in the, in the definition in the Constitution, a quorum of Congress is at least half. So at least Half of the, in order to pass a bill, okay, so at least half of Congress should be here when we are legislating. I know that's a lot to ask to get half of Congress to come to work, um, but so that's what I demanded. And people started, the world came down on me like I, like I was crazy for saying we should follow the Constitution. And then they started blaming me. They started to say, well, you're going to delay this. And the, but, they had like two dead days in the calendar anyway. <laughs> I said, they said, the problem, Mr. Massey, is if you ask for the recorded vote on Friday, that'll put it off until Saturday because it'll take us 24 hours to get people here. Meanwhile, it's Thursday, and I'm saying, no, I'm telling you I'm going to ask for a vote. Get people here. Like, tell them to come so they can be here Friday. And that's exactly what happened today. We got a quorum in the House. Now, I was able to get Congress to come to work, but I wasn't able to get them to work, actually, because after we had a quorum, I showed that the emperor had no clothes because I asked for a recorded vote. Now, you can't say that that's stopping the bill from happening, because once you have a quorum, you take a recorded vote. As long as the majority of the members who are here vote 
vote for the bill, then it passes. And they had a clear majority. And I and oh, man, I did some wrangling with Kevin McCarthy and Nancy Pelosi, (laughs) who were locked arm in arm today, passing this bill and doing everything they could to keep members from having to go on record. So today, even though, you know, in the Senate, they voted 96 to nothing in the House. There was no vote. So, like, I ultimately I was able to get people, I was able to force them using the Constitution to come to work, mm-hmm. but I wasn't able to force them to work, i.e., to vote. So, Congressman, I mean, I saw the picture of uh, of this as it happened because you you brought this up and they they shot it down. They said there was a quorum there. First of all, was there? I mean, it didn't, it didn't appear to me that there was over <laughs> two hundred people in the room. Well, I would have liked to have them uh, count the members. The problem is I asked the parliamentarian, and he said, no, I'm, I'm satisfied that just sort of the visual one over here from the and – and I have immense respect for the parliamentarian. Mm-hmm. And so what they did is they did put members up in the gallery where the uh, tourists usually sit. They didn't allow the tourists, and that way they were able to space this all out. So I, okay. I will – even though it looked kind of sketchy on TV, and I thought about demanding that they count, they actually count them instead of approximating, uh, I do believe they, they had a quorum here today. So they did actually, that's interesting, they could have actually taken the vote and decided not to do it anyway. I mean, at the end of the day, we, I think we understand that this was going to pass by overwhelming margins. I mean, you, you mentioned the Senate 96 to nothing. What was the fear in just taking a vote on it? Oh, well, the leadership uh, on both sides of the aisle, as well as members, told me there were two fears uh, that they had by, if they put people on record. The first fear was, let's say we, there were 250 of 435 here today. Mm-hmm. If you actually took a recorded vote, that would show you who stayed home today. Mm-hmm. And they didn't want to show the, uh, who the members were who didn't come here. Now, they said that's because some of them were sick or dealing with family, and they didn't want to expose them to that. But I can guarantee you there were some of them who just didn't want to come, probably quite a few. They didn't want to expose those people. Now, and it's a valid, you can have valid reasons for not coming to Congress. I haven't made every vote. I've probably made 99-plus percent of the votes. But you explain that to your voters. So they said we got to protect the ones who aren't here today from anybody finding out that they weren't here. And then, the, But the real reason, I believe, is the people who were here, the, say, 250 or 300 who were here, didn't want to go on record voting for what is probably the biggest single mistake in world history. I mean, this is the biggest single uh, spending bill in the history of planet Earth. Yes. And, and is it the know, biggest it, mistake, though? I mean, that's, a, that's, a, that's quite a statement. There's been some big screw-ups. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I think it's a mistake. I, here's why I think it's a mistake. Now, that some of my conservative friends decided that they should vote yes, even though it was a voice vote. You could yell yay or nay. Some of my conservative friends had some pretty good logic for why they should vote yes. They said, look, the governors have deprived, the government has deprived all these people of livelihoods by shutting down things, even in places where the virus isn't prevalent yet. They yeah. just shut everything down. Mm-hmm. And so the government needs to make them whole because this was a taking by the government. Yes. Kind of like eminent domain, if you will. Yeah. So I said, well, here's the problem with that logic. It's the governors who are taking and it's the federal government who is giving back. (laughs) And if we keep giving, we are encouraging governors 
to take the most draconian steps possible. And what's going to happen is they're going to shut the government. They're going to shut the economy down. Right. And we and pretty soon, you, you, instead of just the shortage of ventilators, we're going to have a shortage of food, a shortage of insulin, yeah. a shortage of everything that's manufactured or grown in this country if you shut everything down for three months. Uh, Congressman, we have about one minute left. I, the argument against what you did today was, look, this was going to pass anyway. You, you stuck your neck out there, and everyone agrees you were right on the Constitution. But, I mean, look, this is too important. Uh, you know, we're going to have to make the Constitution wait. And now we have a, you know, a representative, and you know we're fans of yours, who mm-hmm. is getting you know, tweeted about by Donald Trump. You're probably going to get primaried now. You're going to have all this yes. stuff come down on you. And, you know, we need people like you in Congress. And you're, you're risking all of that for something that's not going to get you anywhere. And they, yeah, I've heard people say this is not the hill to die on or that I was grandstanding. This is the Constitution. Here's the problem, Stu. If I didn't stand up here on Pelosi coronavirus 3.0 legislation, what she would do, she's already got 4.0 written. Mm. She, they would just have us all stay home. But now that they know that there's this guy named Thomas Massey who is going to make them come to work if they try to pass a bill, they're going to be very reluctant to do the 4.0 with the, even more pork in it. Uh, than this one had in it. So this this wasn't me, you know, pouring gasoline on myself and set myself on fire. This this hurt me politically. I understand that. But I did it because I have a long-term strategy, which is to discourage them from doing this in the future. Otherwise, Congress becomes irrelevant and the Speaker gets to write all the bills and passes them without us here. Mm. Congressman, we're going to have to leave it there. I mean, if you're going to set yourself on fire, the Constitution's not a bad thing to do it for. So we appreciate you standing <laughs> yeah. up for the Constitution, uh, truly. And uh, please, uh, you know, I've, you got to, you know, I know you have to do this, and, I, and, we, and we appreciate you uh, holding them accountable. Thank you very much, too. And, and ultimately, remember, this didn't even delay the bill, you know, an hour today. That's true. Just That's making true. them do their job. All right. Back in a second. Whenever I don't know how to react to a story, I always look for a hashtag. If I could just get a hashtag to explain the viewpoint I'm supposed to have, it makes life so much easier. And that's why when someone gets accused of something terrible, I always look for hashtag believe all women. Because women, unlike men, never tell lies. They never do anything uh, that is bad, and they can always be trusted with every claim that they make. That is apparently what we're supposed to believe in this country. Um, We, of course, went through this with the Brett Kavanaugh hearings and many other times since. We know the Me Too movement, as it were, has had some really positive results for many people who were wronged. It's also wronged some people as well. And we need to make sure that we balance that and understand it. Um, Looking at the, the way we do that, by the way, is ideally in the legal system. We have a bunch of facts that come out and people testify and they go, blah, 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 blah. I, he did this. No, I didn't. He did this. Then the, ju- the jury of the peers kind of come, come together and, and give a ruling and then they get a sentence if, if appropriate. That's the way we're supposed to do it. It's not the way we do it anymore. Now we just get an accusation and everybody just assumes guilt. Well, this is kind of the approach that Joe Biden has taken over the years. He said, basically, believe all women. Uh, here's let me give you a quote here. This is uh, from Joe Biden for a woman to come forward in the glaring lights of focus nationally. You've got to start off with the presumption that at least the essence of what she's talking about is real, whether or not she forgets facts, whether or not it's been made worse or better over time. 
So you kind of just believe, OK, there was an incident. Maybe maybe she thinks it was 10 percent worse or 10 percent better than it actually was. But there was, of course, an incident. We should always believe that the idea that people that go into the uh, spotlight of the nation are telling the truth. It seems kind of counterintuitive to most people. Um, you know, you go back and you look at things like uh, what was that book that Oprah had on all those years ago? A million Little Pieces, was it? And the guy came out, and he told his big story about his life and then came out and said, ah, yeah, maybe some of that wasn't really true. Now, that was a man, so you don't have to believe men. We know that. But if a woman had written that book, you would have an example of how uh, we're supposed to uh, maybe understand that there's there's problems with people when they come into the uh, public light. Sometimes they are telling lies. The reason I bring this up is that Joe Biden has been accused of sexual harassment. It's a story that's not getting any play in the media. Uh, in 1993, a woman named uh, I believe Tara Reid uh, accused uh, Joe Biden of sexually assaulting her, pressing her up against the wall and doing all sorts of things that we're not going to necessarily get into on this incredible family program that starts with Stu does every single night. Um, the same the same way you look at this and you say, well, you know, we can't just believe someone um, was Blasey Ford or whoever who's you know going after Brett Kavanaugh. Do you believe the person who's accusing Joe Biden. And she's been doing it for a while. Have had no, 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 uh, no press around it. No attention. She reportedly went to uh, like a me, uh, an organization. Um, I think it's the Time's Up organization and, and, and said, look, can you represent me in this? I have a, I have a story. Joe Biden's time is supposed to be up. And they're like, eh, I don't know about that. Uh, we might not be able to help you on this one. Think of the media for a second. David Harsani has a great piece in the National Review about this, talking about the media's treatment. He says, the same media that relayed every unsubstantiated and tawdry rumor during the Kavanaugh confirmation and that happily transmitted the Michael Avenatti-produced gang rape smear is treating Reed's story quite differently. Why, we might ask, isn't Reed receiving the same coverage as E. Jean Carroll, a woman who accused Trump of assaulting her in 1995 or 1996 uh, at Bergdorf Goodman in Manhattan? Virtually every major news organization let Carroll tell her story. Reed has been trying to tell her stories for decades. Do we believe women? Biden has gone on to argue many times that we should just believe women. Um, and, you know, it's an interesting standard he's created basically to believe them no matter what. He said this, what should happen is the woman should be given the benefit of the doubt and not be, you know, abused again by the system. I hope that they understand what courage it takes for someone to come forward and relive what they believe happened to them and let them state it and treat her with respect. Absolutely treat with respect. Absolutely, you have the right in this country, if you have a, a, an accusation, you have the right to be taken seriously. It shouldn't be blown off because, oh, that guy's too wealthy or that guy's too powerful. That's not what should happen in this country. But you should not be believed. We, we, he says he uses the phrase, the woman should be given the benefit of the doubt. That's the exact opposite of our system. We do realize that, right? It's the exact opposite of our system. You're, if the accused is supposed to get the benefit of the doubt. The accused is supposed to be beyond a shadow of a doubt, uh, with, with a reasonable doubt at least. Um, think about that for a second. It's the exact opposite standard. Of course you doubt someone. You have to have skepticism of someone who comes up, especially when they're accusing a presidential candidate. You know, I think this is one of the reasons why none of the stuff that against Trump ever stuck. People inherently and intuitively see this. Okay, there's a really powerful person. Of course people are trying to take him down. The same thing with Kavanaugh. Whether it's true or not, you have to start with skepticism. 
because that is what our system is based on. You can't convict people when you have no evidence. Um, and, and, and even though I don't like Joe Biden, I think he'd be a terrible president. And I don't even know if he could honestly like speak long enough in the coherent sentences to finish the oath. He still deserves the benefit of the doubt. He deserves he would have to be, uh, you know, there have to be, you know, go beyond a reasonable doubt uh, to be able to convict him of this. I don't think we should just be throwing these things out there uh, without having some sort of uh, him having a chance to defend himself. I will say I would like to know from the media why this one's being treated so differently. This came from the left, by the way. This is an accusation that came from left wing media sources. Uh, that's where it was released. Uh, but the, the mainstream media has ignored it completely. Why? It's not right. I mean, something needs to change here. We need to go back to having a factual discussion. And if anything comes out of the Me Too movement, if anything comes out of it, it should be to encourage women to when something terrible like this happens to them to go to authorities and let it be handled in the courts. This sort of treatment, we're going back to 1993. I was in high school in 1993. We're going to go back and, and, and adjudicate that now. It's, it, we have no evidence. We do, it doesn't make any sense. If, the time's up thing needs to be getting to authorities as fast as possible, because that's where we have a system to actually put these guys in prison. And hopefully that's happened. We, we finally saw it with Harvey Weinstein, but it took a long time. It's something that we need to make sure we're seeing uh, in the future. Back in a second. So let's assume that there aren't currently mass graves in China full with uncounted coronavirus fatalities. Let's just please let's hope that's not true. What if America really is leading the world in cases of the deadly virus? Today's guest published an article this week talking about the particular science uh, behind data gathering in the COVID-19 pandemic. It's a tough topic. Uh, please welcome Ari Shulman, editor at the New Atlantis Journal. Ari, thanks for coming on the program, man. Hi, thanks for having me. Uh, it's been an interesting time trying to watch people deal with this because it's tough. It's tough to deal with. I feel like you have a lot of people, you, have, you know, you have some people who are like, if they close one McDonald's for an hour, we've lost this battle. Uh, we've given up all of our freedom. And then the other side, you kind of have this idea where how dare you even consider that there's an economic line here to uh, to kind of balance. I feel like you've done a, a good job trying to really work that out um, in, a, in a nuanced sort of way, because it is not easy to figure out where to draw this line, is it? No, it's not. Uh, I mean, what, what I counsel people is to try to avoid engaging in either of those extremes. You can obviously find logical absurdities in either of the positions that you just outlined. Mm -hmm. I think anybody who is really looking at the situation understands that the reality is somewhere in between and we need to have a, a plan for how to balance that. And right now we, we pretty obviously don't. There's been a, uh, I would say conservatives have kind of seemingly been more on the skeptical side of how bad this is going to be, right? Maybe favoring more on the economic uh, argument, uh, as I outlined earlier. Um, and it's important to make sure that we take this really seriously, that there was a real time um, that uh, we have, we really don't know how bad this is going to be. It looked like it's been really bad around the, around the world. The question, I guess, is, you know, when you're trying to figure out where the line is, how do you, how do you find it? What, what, what are you balancing and, and how do you come to that conclusion? Uh, sure. So what I would say is I think that the fundamental mistake that a lot of people in the news media and in center and mainstream news media were making about four to six weeks ago and that a lot of conservatives have been making for the last two to three weeks is to think that you have to have certainty about what's going to happen before you act. And the way I've been describing this to people is if you're standing on the train tracks and a train is coming for you, you don't really need to know how many cars are on the train to know that you need to get off the tracks, right? And that's the mode that we're in right now. We know that something is coming bad at us. Something bad is coming at us. We don't know how bad it's going to be. 
We also know that it caught us at the last minute and we didn't have a plan for how to deal with it other than to shut everything down. And so that's our, our only option at the moment. It's a really, really bad option. It's very painful, very costly, but it is the only option that we have at the moment. And the thing that we're trying to avoid is a much worse collapse that could be coming down the road. If you look at some of these projections, we could be looking at a collapse of the healthcare system that affects not just people with coronavirus, but people with any other disease that needs to be treated. We could be looking at uh, millions or tens of millions, even young, healthy adults falling ill. That would be absolutely devastating to the economy and have long-term consequences. And so I think the priority right now is to avoid that worst case and to, as quickly as possible, develop a plan for how you do this finer level of balance. And I think that'll involve changing these restrictions to be more regionally targeted, massively scaling up uh, manufacturing of ventilators and masks, changing social norms to get people to wear masks and to be able to accept some level of uh, surveillance and contact tracing. It's a suite of options. But the biggest problem right now is people aren't really being told any of this. They, they're just being told you need to stay in your home and you don't know how long this is going to last. And some people are telling us it could be 18 months. And that's that's not sustainable. Right. And that's, that's a great point, because it really there is some limit to this. Right. Number one, we can't just buy out the entire economy forever. Um, I, can we do a couple of weeks? Yeah, we probably can. I think the American people can deal with that, especially if they know there's a plan around the other side. It's this sort of, you know, my, my wife is at home with the kids and she is struggling with this. I mean, I think a lot of a lot of people are home homeschooling, doing things they've never done before and are really struggling. And a, a big part of that, I think, is they just don't see the, the light at the end of the tunnel yet. But how can you do that and still stay loyal to, uh, you know, respecting the science? Uh, yeah, I think there are a couple of things. I mean, one is they're, they're not seeing a light at the end of the tunnel because we don't have a clear po- a national plan for the duration, right? Mm-hmm. I, I'm reluctant to put any timelines on this, but it just took us two weeks to pass a bill that for most people is going to give them about the amount of money they would need to live on for two weeks. Right. Uh, and we have to have something that's, that's uh, more durable than that, that tells them you're going to be supported in a similar way for however long this lasts. And it will be very different by region. It's going to be a lot longer in New York than it is in you know Wyoming. Um, And then the other thing is people are justly complaining, I think people in rural areas, that they don't really see happening in their area what's happening in New York. And that's true. And that is part of the consequence of the fact that we got caught here without the testing, without the Sentinel surveillance programs that would have detected this earlier on. But the thing is, you have to have the national lockdown until the testing gets in place, because you don't know where the next New York is going to be, where the next Louisiana is going to be. And so I think the key goal right now, actually, one of the key goals of testing Part of it is a public health response, but part of it is also political so that you can tell people uh, you're being asked to lock down because we have clear knowledge uh, that there is actually an outbreak in your area. And then everyone else who doesn't have an outbreak in their area, the, the uh, restrictions can be relaxed. I think that's the biggest goal right now. And I think that's something the American people could can accept. Um, when you look at this, though, you see, you know, I, I, I go back to this and I, I feel I go back and forth like it's a law and order episode where like one side is making the argument and I believe them. And then the other right. side is big, and I believe them. There's this there's this world of like if have you seen any of the sort of skeptical uh, and there's been a few scientists who have come out lately. There was a Washington University study that came out and estimated the deaths much, much lower than we saw from the Imperial College in London. Is there anything there that shows hope to you that maybe this isn't going to be this everlasting sort of uh, crisis that we're facing? Uh, yes. I mean, I, I would again say that the that adjudicating which of those projections is right is not the top priority right now, yeah. because anything within that range of projections points to a similar set of actions that need to be taken over the next two, four or six weeks. 
Those projections become more important once we've stopped the runaway growth of this disease and can adopt a more fine-tuned approach. But it, under any reading of the situation right now, we have to keep what's happening in New York from happening in the rest of the country. And there's no doubt that what's happening in New York is happening in, in New York. I do think that there are some reasons for hope. Uh, there are some reasons to believe that the United States may be a little bit less susceptible to something as devastating as what's happening in Italy and Spain. The, the mm -hmm. growth and the death rates don't seem to be quite as sharp here. There are a lot of possible reasons for that. We're a little bit more spread out as a country. This may be why New York is getting hit worse than other parts of the country, because it's very dense there. Um, but I, uh, what I'm trying to counsel people on is resolve and action more than hope. The main hope is that America is a very resilient country. We still have a real manufacturing capability. We have a great deal of ingenuity. And you can see these kinds of things kicking in, civil society, businesses, local governments taking very, very rapid actions that can make a huge difference in this outcome. And that's, that's what we need to be doing regardless of what the projections say. I, I am concerned about the globe because while we are taking action, Europe's taking action, we obviously have seen China and South Korea, and, and there's been examples of it. For example, Mexico is doing basically nothing. I mean, they're not even testing really yet. Um, and they're obviously right across our border. If this is as, you know, if it is going to ravage a country, there's a lot of them that are really doing almost no prevention whatsoever to this point. And, you know, we obviously are a country that welcomes uh, people uh, all the time. Um, we are, share a border with a country really who's got their president out there kissing, you know, children today. You know, I mean, like this is they are really test if these projections are right about these high numbers, Mexico and many other countries are going to feel them. How can we stop it from breaking out here again, even if we do a decent job of it ourselves? Well, regardless of what happens in other countries, the virus is going to be here in this country and we are going to be dealing with regional outbreaks from it. Uh, until there is a vaccine, essentially, mm -hmm. and potentially longer than that, because it's not a guarantee that a vaccine would have the effectiveness of, say, the polio vaccine. It could be something closer to what the flu vaccine is, which is it lowers the incidence. And so I think we need to be looking at a broad range of options to transition to something closer to what they're doing in South Korea, in Israel, uh, in Singapore, in Japan, which is that they normalize widespread uh, mask wearing. They have much more aggressive and efficient surveillance programs. And basically, when you can get these things in place, um, you can much more easily identify the sick. You isolate them, you take very good care of them, you put them up in, in very nice facilities, and then everybody else who is healthy and who is known to be healthy can go about their work. And that's going to be the picture, at least for the next 18 months until a vaccine comes online. And it's, uh, it's possible that it could go on longer than that, depending on the effectiveness of the new vaccine. But that's going to be the same way that we have to deal with the pot potential for new contagions coming in from other countries, because, yeah, it's, this is going to be going on around the world for a long time. Okay, we've got about 30 seconds left. Um, is, is the end of this basically, this is in a way going to answer itself. We're going to have to constantly reassess, prepare much better for next time, obviously, ramp this up and do everything we can to fight it. But eventually, this is going to wind up uh, answering itself as to what our actions are going to be. We can't, we can't project this thing out two, three, four, eight months. We're going to have to react to whatever conditions are on the ground. Yeah, that's exactly right. And one of the difficulties of this is uh, we will never know what would have happened if we had taken the other path. We'll never know for sure whether we underreacted or overreacted because we only get to go down one of these timelines to mm. use a sci-fi term. We don't get to know what happens if we acted another way. So we have to act prudently and I think aggressively in the light of, uh, of an uncertain but very real threat that's looming in front of us. All right. Ari Shulman, it's editor of uh, New, uh, New Atlantis. Uh, thanks so much for coming on the program. I appreciate you taking the time. Thank you for having me. All right. Back in a second.
Got a new season of Ozark. You got Tiger Kings this weekend. But, I mean, if you really want entertainment, blazetv.com slash stew. Use the promo code stew. Biggest savings ever. 30 bucks off. Great way to spend the quarantine.